0: We have Abbas Mohammed on with me here today, and you can find what he and his team are up to at modelequity.com slash invest. And there's an amazing story here because Abbas and his team have managed to currently have $54 million in assets, about 1,500 units under management, all within 18 months, which is insane growth. Abbas, I really appreciate your time here today.
1: I appreciate you having me on. And just to clarify, part of that is also passive, but actively we're at 338.
0: Okay. It's still a very quick ramp up here. I'd like to see where you started. Did you, when you got into real estate investing, did it start in like single family homes and... A lot of us do, or did you jump right into multifamily investing like
1: this? Yeah, so I actually jumped right into multifamily. So my background on real estate prior to getting in is I got into real estate at 18 years old as a residential real estate agent. And the first year, I just, I failed miserably at it. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, But then I started getting transactions. And then within about four and a half years in the business, I became top 50 in the country with Remax. I had about 25 virtual assistants. And so we really ramped up our operations and my business was doing very well. And I got to a point where it's, okay, what do I do with all the cash that's coming in from the sales business? And so I was actually going to go out and start to build basically a single family portfolio. And I just, after looking at it deeper, I decided that I wanted to skip that completely for multiple reasons, but mainly because I realized I don't have control of the value meaning the value of these homes is really based on interest rates and based on affordability. And as interest rates would go up in the future, this was a few years ago, my thinking was on this, as interest rates would go up, these housing prices are going to start to go down. And so I really have no control over that. The other thing is that it was very hard to scale And I lived in California and I didn't want to buy in California either because then I would have to deal with all these different laws and everything. I decided not to do single family. I looked at other investment options like crypto and stocks and all these other things. And I did not like that either. And so then eventually I found out about multifamily and there were many reasons why I got into multifamily, but I jumped straight from not investing in a single family to just doing my first deal at 64 units. And to me, I think that was one of the best decisions I made.
0: Can I ask you, like, what kind of process you went through to decide on making that first investment?
1: Yeah, so it was actually a lot of things. When I first started, I started off passively. So I invested in a a number of deals passively just because I wanted to make sure that this multifamily thing was actually real and it works and everything. So I invested in a few deals passively. And then about six months later, I decided to, to start actively buying. And to me, I've analyzed before getting into multifamily. I analyzed, obviously, thousands of deals in single family. And what I realized over time is that the most important aspect of investing was not necessarily just choosing a property, but more important than that was choosing the right market. And so I came up with a criteria of how I was going to choose markets. So then I applied that same criteria to multifamily. And based on that, I decided to focus on the Dallas Fort Worth market for many reasons. But after I chose the Dallas Fort Worth market, then i went in and and started basically building relationships with brokers the nice thing about what i was doing is because my background was in real estate sales as a as an agent and i was one of the top like i said in the country at the time and all i did was listings i knew what these multifamily brokers wanted to wanted to hear from a buyer and how they wanted to operate so i was able to go into dallas and build a lot of relationships with a lot of different brokers very quickly and so that helped us tremendously in, in sourcing deals over time. And so that was, I would say that was my superpower. Besides choosing the market, building the relationships with brokers and getting off-market deal flow and getting brokers to, to trust me and want to work with me, because that gives us a huge advantage over other buyers who might not have those sort of relationships, might not be getting those off-market deals. But to go over how I chose the Dallas market or why I choose markets specifically over others, some of the things we look at are things like population growth, migration patterns, and all these other things. And to me, that's the most important criteria because real estate is all about supply and demand. The more demand you've got, the lower supply you're going to have and the higher prices go. So I first I first look at population growth, but then I also look at job growth. I look at income of these different areas. I look at the laws. I don't want to be in a landlord a hostile environment like California or Oregon or Washington, even though if you look at o- Oregon or Washington, they have a lot of population growth, but their laws are very anti-landlord. They're very pro-tenant. And so I would never invest in a state like that, for example. But then I also start looking at area incomes and a, all these different things, because if you buy a property, you want to be able to increase rent. And if people are not making enough money for you to be able to increase rent on them, then you're not going to be able to implement your business plan. So some of my requirements whenever I invest is I want to see area income of $40,000 a year or higher. If my projected increase of rent is, say, $2,000, then I want to see the average household income to be $6,000, right? Because it's a 3x multiple. So I look at a bunch of different factors, but to me, choosing a market is the most important. The second important aspect after that is sourcing the right deals. And so the way I do it is just by building amazing broker relationships and that's been working for us really well.
0: You beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you regarding your market criteria, but now that you brought it up, you talk about building your network on the with those brokers. Are there certain strategies or tactics that you've implemented in order to establish those relationships?
1: Yeah, it's I think the most important part of building those relationships is a few things, but number one is you really have to treat brokers like their friends because people want to do business with other people that they know and trust and so if you can get them to know you like you and trust you by being omnipresent being all over the market being on social media reaching out to them on deals that you're interested in and just showing them that you're very diligent about the whole process if they send you a deal you're fast to respond whether it's hey i'm interested to give me more info or hey i'm not interested this is my actual criteria just being fast to respond being communicative being honest and then if you get under contract, this is another thing that I've realized is very important. If you get under contract on a property, do what you say you're going to do. I I see sometimes buyers get under contract and the minute they get under contract, they go back and they try to change the terms and renegotiate for no reason. If there's a legit reason, I get it. But if there's no reason, you just, sometimes I see people put a property under contract with terms that they actually don't expect to close on just to get the deal. And so the minute you do things like that, you burn the relationship. So I just... I'm just very diligent with them. I treat them well. And if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And I don't bring up any excuses like, oh, the market is hard. Things are changing too fast. Nope. This is what I said I'm going to do. And I'm going to keep working at it until we close. And if I can't close for whatever reason, I've never had that. But if I can't close, at least they'll see the amount of effort that I put in to to make it happen. And So that has helped me really establish deep relationships because they know if they give me a deal that I'm going to do everything possible. To close on the deal.
0: When you make that initial reaching out to the to that broker, is there anything in particular that you do to get their attention? Because I know that, I'm sure, some of the great, the best brokers are being reached out to all of the time and trying to weed out who's actually a legitimate investor and who's not. You know, a bit daunting on their
1: end. Yeah. So it's interesting. I actually have a whole strategy around this that I learned from someone else. This was not my idea originally, and that is. Instead of going after the, so in multifamily, you've got teams. Usually it's not one person selling a whole property by themselves. They've got teams. And so in those teams, you've got multiple different workers. And so most people, what they do is they find a team that they want to establish a relationship with and they go after the top broker in the team. The problem with that top broker is getting calls and emails from literally everybody. And if you're a brand new person to the market or to multifamily or real estate, they're just They just don't have the time to pay attention to you because they've got other relationships they've already established that they need to stay in touch with. So what I personally do is I actually go to the teams and the markets that I'm interested in, and then I start building relationships with the newer brokers. So maybe the brokers that have just joined in the past six months or the past year or the past two years that are still establishing their database, establishing their relationships, because as you grow your business, they're gonna grow their brand and their ability to get deals in that market. And so then you just grow together. And so that's the strategy I implement. I actually go after the kind of more junior brokers in the teams because it's so much easier to build relationships with those guys. And and they're trying to do deals. And so they will communicate with you, they will show you deals, they will vouch for you if needed. And so I really I really like to implement that strategy rather than going after the most wanted person on the team.
0: If you're watching this video, you'll notice there's a banner behind a boss's shoulder and it looks like you wrote a a book or a guide on how to buy multifamily real estate at this point. If they go to model equity.com slash invest, would they find a download to that?
1: Yeah. So if they actually make an account on our website. They will also get that ebook for free. And so, what this ebook is, it's basically like a step-by-step process on how to buy multifamily real estate. You could do it actively by yourself, or you could invest passively with us. That book will basically kind of walk you through the whole process. And I made this actually last year, and it's been one of the best things that I've ever made. It has helped my business tremendously because. Our database has grown so much as a result of that book because people get it, then they send it off to other people that then also download it. And it's free, it doesn't cost anything. You can download it anytime. And so that's really been a major game changer for us, actually.
0: So there had to have been a driving reason for you to write that book. What was the, what spurred that on?
1: Yeah, so I always wanted to add value to the people that are in my database. And so I would, I did things like doing videos and maybe I'd write blogs and all these other things. And then I realized one time I'm like, if I had a way to like, just give a super high value item up front for free, and this thing would be the first item that people go through. And so it'd have to be like super high value and really teach people a lot of different things. What would it be? And I realized most people really don't want to sit through like a multi hour type of video course or whatever. And so after thinking it through, I decided to come up with the ebook because I saw other people that had done ebooks in other industries and those are very common and very successful. So I did the same in multifamily and that's been working out really well. I get a lot of investors that read it and then they text me about it. So it's been working out great.
0: I'm not going to make you give away all of the secret sauce in your book, but what is one of the biggest Takeaway somebody would get from your book, or it seems to be the most popular insight that people have responded to?
1: Yeah, I would say easily choosing markets. I, wrote, I go really in depth on how to choose markets correctly in that book, and I give out our criteria and our exact process. That's kind of, I would say that's one of my biggest or best skills, I would say, choosing markets, analyzing the deals. And so I go really in depth on that in the book. I also go into other things like building broker relationships and analyzing deals. And I talk about financing. I talk about some of the top mistakes I see people make. I talk about some ways to add value to deals. But really, the biggest thing I get the most feedback on is choosing markets.
0: Yeah. and One of the questions I told you that I'm going to have a list of rapid fire questions as we wrap up this episode. But I'm going to kick one off here right off the bat. And one of them is, what is a real estate investing myth that you would like to bust here today? You're proving one out in a certain aspect. A lot of people will go into single-family homes thinking it is a lower bar of entry. Would you say that isn't actually the case?
1: I would. Yeah, I would say it's actually harder to buy single-family than it is to buy multifamily, and for many reasons. This was actually the one I was going to bring up, so I, I appreciate you bringing it up. So when I first started, I, again, I remember I was a residential broker. I used to sell a lot of houses. I. I don't do that anymore, but I remember at the time, I would have so many clients that wanted to buy single-family rentals in the Bay Area. And I actually always advised them against doing that because I saw other clients I had who had bought single-family rentals and they had all these problems with evictions, with tenants not paying rent on time, having to deal with these houses. And the numbers just didn't make sense. Like you might get 200 $300 a month in cash flow, But then 12 months later, you might have an AC issue. Then you have to fork out 10 grand just to fix the AC issue or maybe have a rough issue. And so I just never, it just never made sense to me to buy single family because it's just not scalable. There's too many moving parts. And so I was thinking about, again, building a single family housing portfolio. But then I, as I started digging into multifamily, I found all these people that had bought 200 homes, 250 homes, 300 homes. Then then we're selling all of their single family portfolio to go into multifamily. So then I was like, listen, if I'm going to be investing in real estate and I see these guys that have bought single family, they've already went through it and now they've decided to jump into multifamily, why would I go and rebuild it from scratch? I'm just going to jump straight into multifamily. And so when I did it, I wanted to be careful. And so I just invest passively just to see what it's like. And I can tell you that that sold me. I just saw the returns. I saw the depreciation I was getting. Just the depreciation, I ended up getting about 800000 of depreciation in 2021, which saved me hundreds of thousands on taxes. And I ended up getting a quarter of a million dollar refund. So the, just the tax savings have been worth it, let alone the cash flow and the appreciation and all these other things that that you get from investing.
0: Sure. Just to remind everybody, it is modelequity.com slash invest In fact, I'm going to ask you to do me a quick favor. If you found any of value here so far with the boss, send a link to this episode to one of your friends who's getting into real estate. I'm sure they would really appreciate it. Abbas, one of the things that I always find really interesting is that when you're starting, you obviously are managing a syndication here now. Yep. Did you find getting into syndication a hurdle that needed some study or was that easier than you expected?
1: Yeah, it was definitely, it was harder, to be honest with you, than I thought. The biggest hurdle with that is that really, as you get into syndications, you're raising money and using other people's money on these deals. And to me, mentally, that was that was not easy because I'm like, okay, I'm okay with losing my money. I could go and I could go make more money, not a big deal. But then as I was raising money on my first deal, I had some of my friends, some of my past clients, some people in my network. I remember one lady actually explicitly she had a $100,000 in savings and she wanted to put $50,000 in there. And I'm like, I'm like, no, you don't understand. This has a risk to it because it's an actual investment. There's no guarantee you might lose your money. The chance of that happening is slim. but I didn't want her to go through with it. But I believed in the deal fully. I was signing on the loan. I was putting my own money into the deal. And so then she just kept insisting and she wanted to put her money in the deal. And that deal is doing super well. Just last year, we've increased NOI by 29%. So she's got to do really well on it. But the point of that is it just made me realize that at a much deeper level, like this is serious. This is other people's money. This could be someone's retirement money. This could be the last hundred thousand they have in their banking account. which by the way, I do not recommend you invest your last 50 or 100,000 into deals. I recommend you always have reserves. But the point of that is it's real people's money. And so you better be very careful about choosing markets, choosing deals operating the deals at the maximum potential that they could operate at because it's not your money at the end of the day, someone else's money. And I want to be a good steward of their money.
0: I hate to take a sidestep here, but one of the things that you just pointed out is that isn't it interesting how, as soon as you pushed her away regarding that that investment, the more she pursued?
1: Oh my God, it's crazy. Unless she came back and you wanted to invest again in the next deal. I'm like, no, don't do it. But she had more money at that time, and she again she wanted to do. It. But yeah, I realized that actually, when you push people away, they want to really do it, and it's unfortunate because sometimes I really don't want people to do it because I I know they don't have as much money and they shouldn't be necessarily investing. I always recommend people invest in multifamily, but at the same time, I always think it's a good idea to have reserves. Like you need money set aside for your own needs and anything extra, sure invest it, but don't invest your last dollar into deal.
0: Yeah. I just always find that is, that's one of the most interesting things, whether it's a syndication or you're trying to create a partnership or whatever, the lack of, I'm going to say desperation. Yep. Actually adds to that no trust that you mentioned earlier.
1: 100%. 100%. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's very important that as people do deals that they think of investors like that being in their deals. Like anytime I'm looking at a deal, here's how I think through it. I'm like, would I want Brent, and I personalize it by mentioning the name and think of the person, would I want Brent to be putting money into this deal? Do I want Rebecca to be putting money into this deal? Because these are real people that I have a real relationships with, and I would not want to ruin those relationships over a transaction.
0: Right. People are listening to this episode here right now, and whether they they invest in your syndication or somebody else's, they decide that they want to go passively. What are some of the questions or considerations they should be thinking about before handing over their money?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say a few things. Number one is you want to ask, you want to really vet the sponsor more than anything else because the sponsor could make or break a deal. So you want to ask them how they chose the market, why they chose the specific area, why they chose the specific property, what's the actual business plan. Um, what are the downsides risk of this deal? How could you lose your money? How could you make money on a deal? If they said that there's no downside risk or that or there's no risk of you losing money at all, that I would be very careful. That's a red flag to me. So I want to see all these things. And then I want to see, ideally, if something was to go south or something was to happen to this person, and let's hope none of that happens, is there someone else as a backup, right? Do they have contingencies on there? So you want to make sure you go through all this stuff because- so and some of these are harder questions, but asking the hard questions is important. And if the sponsor doesn't have the answers to those type of questions, or they they don't want to respond for whatever reason, I've seen some that don't respond at all when you ask these type of questions. Then just move on, save your money for another deal. There are plenty of deals out there, but there but there are some good deals and there are some bad deals. And so you just want to vet out the right deals. Overall, people have done very well, especially over the past decade or so, and and. And real estate in general, but specifically also in multifamily, I think there's always risk. So you should always vet out the sponsor as much as possible.
0: So during this past two years of you doing this, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've made that you would advise everybody to avoid?
1: It's, it's so I'll tell you what my progress was as I got into multifamily. When I first started actively was back in and June, and so I closed my first deal in beginning of August, late July of 2021. That was six and a half million. Then I bought a $30 million deal about three months later, closed that in December, 2021. And so then I stayed out of the market in Q1 and Q2 of 2022 because I thought the market was overpriced. And so now I'm going all in. In July of 2022, after the market prices went down, I started buying again. And so I'm thinking this year, 2023 is going to be the best year for multiple reasons. One is that we have the same assets that we're selling for, let's say, $10 million are now selling for $8 million, $8.5 million. So we're getting about a 15%, 20% discount. The other thing that's happening is that a lot of buyers are sitting on the sidelines because they're afraid, because they're worried. And in my opinion, if you are thinking about investing, I would say now, in my opinion, is a safer time, it's a better time to enter because you're getting the same assets at a discount. And you don't have as much competition as you used to, because people tend to do what everyone else is doing. If they see other people sitting on the sidelines, they'll sit on the sidelines. And uh, right now is a great time to just do the opposite of that, be in the market. And so to answer your question, one of the mistakes that I personally, I think I made is I wasted six months last year. From January to June, there weren't any good deals. And so instead of Instead of just realizing that and putting the pencils down and just waiting it out uh, and doing something else, I just kept looking at deals. I flew to multiple states. I literally looked at 400 deals, tried to make sense of the market, and nothing was making sense. And I just realized at some point, it's not me. The market was just overpriced and the market corrected. And then I entered. I could have used those six months better by maybe going out and building more relationships with more investors and just doing other things to grow the business in other ways rather than trying to make something work that wasn't really working.
0: You, you've mentioned this a couple of times. You mentioned you earlier you had multiple virtual assistants helping you on a couple of things. And then you you just mentioned now getting help scaling your business. Has that always been something that you've pursued, the concept of working in Or working on instead of in your business, or is that a mindset shift you had to go through? And how did you find your way in letting? So it's funny.
1: I remember when I first started in real estate. I was 18 years old. I was a a basic at the time. I was an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. But I got in. I
0: wasn't an idiot at 18. Let's face it.
1: That's very true. And sometimes I meet people. I'm like, God, I could go back in time, and I know what I know now. I'd be so much better. But what's interesting is I I used to work super hard. And I remember two years into the business. I was at the time, I was 20 years old. I was making about $350,000 a year. But I was working 15, 16 hours a day. And I just realized, I'm like, this is not sustainable. There has to be a better way to work than for me to work 15, 16 hours a day. And so I hired my first virtual assistant back end of 2019. And then I hired two more. Before COVID and then when COVID hit, I saw everybody else start to reduce their business size and fire people and all that stuff. And so at the time I actually hired the hiring manager and I said, listen, your job is to hire people nonstop right now and grow the business as much as possible. Even if I tell you not to do it anymore, keep hiring people nonstop. And so that's what she did. We went from having three people to 12 and then I was able to triple my business income that year. The following year we did the same thing. We went from 12 to 25 and I was able to triple my income again. And so that really showed me that if I want to grow the business, I, it has to go beyond me and my abilities and my time. And so that was all virtual assistant. And now when I'm in multifamily, I realize not only do I have to delegate the things that I know, I also have to delegate the things that I don't know how to do by bringing in people that could do things that I just don't have the ability to do or don't have the time to do. Like I recently added on someone to our team. He's now the head of capital formation, basically. And so what he does is he's going to focus on raising equity from super high net worth individuals and family offices. And this guy's been doing that for 30 years. And I could spend 30 years of my life to get to that same skill, or I could hire someone, bring him in, give him a piece of the pie, and then have them bring that skill in-house. And that helps you move so much faster because there are so many different things and so many different skills. I could never learn them in my lifetime. And so the easier way to do it is to just bring in the right people and have them grow the business with you. This guy that I'm I'm talking to you about, he's working just as hard as I'm working. He's working weekends. He's working weekdays. He's working evenings because he has good incentive in the business that he wants to scale it up as much as I do. So that's been a mental mind shift that I had about three years ago. And so now anytime I'm thinking about how do we do something, I think, who should I hire that could do what I'm trying to do? And that has been a much more beneficial question than how do I do this? It's who could do this with us? Now, when you start a business, I've realized it's very important that you're in the seat at the beginning, especially because you want to build out the right structure, the right foundation, the right core values and everything. But then later on, as you start growing it, you should add more people in there. So that way they could actually help you grow it faster.
0: And that's interesting. So what was the first thing you let go when you hired that first VA?
1: This was back when I was in my sales business. What I was doing is I had two headsets on and I was cold calling all day long, working for okay. clients. And so my first virtual assistant was in there to basically cold call with me. So I hired one and then I noticed we were doubling our lead size per week. And then I had a second. So we tripled our leads per week. Then I had a third and basically quadrupled our leads. And so then afterwards, I realized I was spending so much time looking to hire the right people and vetting them out. So then my next hire was a hiring manager. She started hiring a lot of people and I was just training people to cold call. Then I'm like, okay, I'm spending all day long now. I'm not cold calling, but I'm training people. And so then I hired a training manager. And so she started training people. Then it's okay. Now I'm just doing phone calls for sales to set appointments and then going on appointments. So then I'm like, okay, I need to hire salespeople to do these Follow up calls. So I hired two people that did that. And then I was doing just listing appointments. So then eventually I got an agent to do those appointments. And so now the business is literally 100% passive because I've got all the people doing it for me. And so then I shifted my focus in April of last year to just model equity and multifamily. And so now my entire focus is building that up. I hired someone to underwrite for us. And so now I only look at a deal if it pencils out. And then the next thing, I realized is that I was spending a lot of time on the marketing and setting up the email and all these different things. So I hired someone to do that for us. And recently I hired someone to help us with equity raising because I spent so much time doing that. So it's just it's one step at a time. I look at what I'm doing right now, the most up, and then I put somebody else up there too. The
0: sure. That's interesting. It's one of those things that as entrepreneurs, I think we have a hard time seeing it as an that as an investment. As much incentive an, as an expense,
1: yeah, that makes sense. You know yeah. what it is? I think that there's two problems with most business owners, including myself. And I still struggle with this, by the way, but especially when I first started. And that is, number one, is we think we're the best, right? We're the best at what we do. Nobody could do it as well as we could do. And that might be true, right? But if you hire two people, three people that do one thing that you're doing at 100% and they could do it at 80%, and you hire two people to do that, now you're at 160% of production. And so you have to think of it in this case, even if they're not gonna be as good as you, which by the way is a mistake. I don't think that's actually true. I think the people that we're hiring are better at the things that they're doing than I would be, because I was so shattered doing so many things. I did not I wasn't really focused on one thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is we get worried about the cost, which is a real concern, especially if you obviously most of us we're not raising money for to fund our business growth. We're growing our business out of the proceeds we're making. And so what you have to get really good at is just monetize. If you know how to monetize the people that are working with you and know and in which areas can you bring in extra revenue by hiring people, then hiring people isn't an expense anymore. It becomes a profit generator because I know if I hire someone in this specific seat, I might pay them X amount per hour, but they'll make me X amount per hour. So then it's like, why wouldn't we hire a hundred of them? To make us as much money as possible. So you just have to know how do I monetize every role? And if you know how to do that, then hiring becomes free. Have you
0: tried to stay domestically or there's, I understand there's a lot of VA companies out there that have overseas resources. What have you found the best?
1: Yeah. So when I first started, I just, I started with a VA company that was hiring for us. I was not really happy with the overall, how do I say it, performance. Because what I realized is that a lot of times the people that they were hiring were people that couldn't get jobs on their own because if they could get jobs on their own, they could. Mm. so then what I ended up doing is I just figured out what these companies are doing to hire people, and we started bringing that process in-house. So we learned how to post job ads on these different websites, local to the countries that I'm hiring from, how to vet people out and set up a system. So I, it took me a lot of time to come up with those systems, but then once you come up with them one time, that's it. You don't have to redo it every time. And so we started just hiring people directly. We started hiring the Philippines and then Pakistan and India. Then we started hiring from Mexico and Argentina and Dominican Republic and all these other countries. And it was just, it was phenomenal. Now I've shifted my focus where I used to be just 100% VA. Now I'm focused a lot more on hiring some VAs to help with the lower level admin tasks. But really, I want to hire people that are local in the U.S., that have skills that I don't have. Because I've noticed that will help you transform the business significantly. One one amazing person can be equivalent to many decent people.
0: Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. The one thing that I've always struggled with is that I've had we've tried VAs in the past and to get them to go off script has been it's almost impossible sometimes <laughs> because you want to, we buy houses at discounts and, yeah. and, uh, and just to go through the formulaic form, isn't it what you really want to do? You want to have them have a conversation and it doesn't typically work out that way.
1: Yeah, it's very hard because here's what I realized. It's hard to train someone to do that. So what you want to do is you just want to keep filtering through people until you find that person that could do it. And so like our hiring process, we might get hundreds of applications. We interview very few. And then out of the people we interview, we actually hire four people at the same time for any given job role, because I know this is, and I've hired now hundreds of people. So I can tell you the process. Two of them will quit. One of them I'll fire because they just don't do well, or they don't show up on time, or they're not serious enough. And then I'll keep one. That's always been the process. Hire four, two will quit. One will be fired and then one will stay. And so now I just you know, look, if I want to hire, I know I have to go through hundreds of people, but so I came up with a formula. So that way we go through that efficiently. So I came up with tests, like mental quizzes and like they have to so sort voice recordings, and all that stuff. So by the time that we actually ever interview them, like they're pretty qualified people.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Just one last time, mod, model equity.com slash invest, learn more about what a boss and his team are doing. But like I said, I warned you, we chew up a half hour pretty quickly here, boss. But I do have a few rapid fire questions I kind of want to wrap up with. Starting with, is there a book you would recommend everybody checking out or what are you reading right now?
1: Yeah, so I don't read a lot of books, to be honest with you, because I like to read one book multiple times until I implement it. One of the books I had to recommend to everybody is Whatever It Takes by Stephen Schwartzman. He's the guy that built Blackstone. And and this guy is just amazing. If you read his book, you really have to understand how much work you have to put in order to make a large company successful. But then he also talks about something very interesting. And he says, building a large company takes as much work as building a small company. Because with a large company, you could bring in eight people that can actually help you grow the company. With a small company, you can't do that. And so that was a major mindset shift to me when I read that book. And so I always highly recommend it because I think that was one of the like life-changing books for me.
0: No, that's a great I haven't had anybody recommend that one. So I got it on my list now while you're yeah, looking at it. So what is the biggest business mistake you've made so far and what did you learn from
1: it? Biggest business mistake, I would say the, that six months of time I wasted last year, I mean, that that's a lot of time. We literally had zero production during those six months because I was trying to make sense of the market when nothing was making sense. We didn't buy anything, which is good, but I could have spent my time better. So now I've just, I've realized, look, if things are not making sense, I should just refocus on other areas that where I could actually help the business move forward. It was me and a few other people in the business. And it's like, we're all spending all our time trying to make sense of these deals and nothing was making sense. And so we wasted a lot of time. We could have done other things.
0: That reminds me of a lot of the people, quite a few people that reach out to me or whatever. They, this, they're stuck in analysis paralysis and they never take that initial step. Yep, It's taking that imperfect action Yeah, sometimes is the biggest thing a person can do.
1: 100%, 100%. I also wish I would have hired, by the way, this is another thing I've recently realized over the past year and that is I wish I would have hired higher level talent that new skills that I didn't have earlier. It took me a long time to get to that because I always couldn't justify the price. How could I hire someone that charges X amount per year and I can just hire someone so much cheaper and I just have to go learn the skill and teach it to them, it'd be so much cheaper. But then you realize over time, you don't have the time to learn those skills. Lance. And even if you do, you're never going to be good at it as, at the same level as someone who's been doing it for 20, 30 years. So it's actually cheaper to pay someone way more and have them bring those skills into the business. And that will help me grow much faster. I just wish I had realized that sooner.
0: Yeah. I was just about to ask you if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? But yeah, it would be that you you just answered
1: too many skills, man. It's interesting. So I go to a lot of masterminds and in these masterminds, sometimes they bring in these people that are worth just billions of dollars. And as these guys talk, what I've realized consistently, not one time consistently is that a lot of times they actually have less skills than a lot of us do but they're just very skilled at very few things and they're in, they know where to stick to. And so because of that, they could grow the business because they realize what they're not good at and what they are really good at and they stick to things they're really good at versus a lot of us try to, oh, there's this thing that the business needs, let me go try to learn it and implement it. And so no, that's not what a billionaire would do. What a billionaire would do is say, okay, we're not good at this. Who do I need to bring in that could actually help us with this process? And that person will help change the business completely. So, It's just the realization that these higher level people, higher income people are not out there trying to learn new skills.
0: Right. So you have 60 seconds to give everybody one piece of advice. What is it? They can implement today.
1: Yeah. One piece of advice I would say is to think much bigger than what you're actually thinking right now. I've just realized consistently I think bigger and then I meet other people that are doing way better than I'm doing and I realize I'm playing at a a, a much smaller pace than I should have been playing at and so that motivates me and then I as I ramp up my production I realize I could have done this so much sooner so I would say whatever you're thinking right now think 100x think 10x whatever it is and just see where are the bottlenecks because that will show me the bottlenecks and the business that's one thing the other Mm -hmm. thing is that A lot of things take way more effort than what we think. Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, oh, I already tried this thing. It didn't work. But then the reason that these things they attempt didn't work is because they just didn't put in enough volume into these things. So I would say think much bigger to find out where the bottlenecks are in the business and try to move faster. But also the other thing is put in more volume, whatever you think you're doing that's not working, try putting in more volume and seeing what the result is. I remember a lot of people telling me, for example, in the sales business, cold calling didn't work for us. And it's how many cold calls are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're doing like 100, 200 cold calls a week. We were dialing on the phone. We used dialers and everything. We were dialing 150,000 numbers per day with 25 people. Each person was at 12 lines and each 12 lines would go through two times per minute at 25 people full time. And so it's no wonder it didn't work for you because we're putting in literally hundreds of thousands of calls per day you're putting in a hundred a week. And so it just shows you the difference in volume. The strategy sometimes works, but it's just the amount of action that's being taken makes the strategy not work for some people, but work for others. Maybe I went over.
0: Well, no, that was awesome. So Abbas, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today?
1: Ben, I think you're honestly an amazing host. You really know how to dig deep and keep the conversation flowing really well. And so now I, but I appreciate you asking.
0: Again, it is modelequity.com slash invest. And uh, Abbas gave us a ton of great content and tips and tricks here today. Please take a moment, share this with another one of your real estate investing friends, and uh, we'll see you next time. Appreciate it. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.